Here is the prayer that Jesus has for us, specifically for us. Beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, I do not pray for these alone. This referring to his disciples who are with him. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, that would be you and me. We are those who have come to believe in Jesus as a result of the word which his disciples preach. So this is a prayer specifically for you and for me. He says, I pray for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Isn't it interesting that twice Jesus says that through the oneness and the unity of the church, that the world may believe that God the Father had sent Jesus. He says it twice, once in verse 21 and another time in verse 23. In other words, the world is supposed to be able to look at the church and in this community of unity and love and peace, they should be able to look at that and see that Jesus truly is the Son of God. That the testament of the church is so much so So that the world is able to look at the church and go, this is a divinely appointed system. This isn't like any other worldly system that tries to strive for the ideal but fails and collapses. This is a movement that not only fulfills the ideal, but points towards something greater. That points towards Jesus. It's so important that Jesus decides to say it twice. And this is the main emphasis I want for us to have this morning. Why is it that Jesus wants the church to be united together? Why does he want his people to be one? In verse 23, he says, I I in them and you in me that they may be perfect in one. The word word here for perfect, teleo in the Greek, has many meanings. Perfect, fulfilled, complete, or used for its intended purpose. What is the intended purpose that God has for his church? What does it mean for God's church to fulfill, to live up to the intended purpose that that God has for it? I think we just need to finish verse 23. That the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The purpose of the church is to point people towards Christ. The purpose of the church is its mission Its mission is to proclaim the gospel. We could say for the Adventist movement, it's the gospel, the everlasting gospel, which we see in the three angels message. This is the purpose of the church. And that is what it means for the church to be fulfilled in its purpose. The unity of the church, however, or the mission of the church is intrinsically tied to its unity. If the church is not united... It is unable to fulfill its mission. It's unable to fulfill its purpose. 
If it is one, by the very nature of it being united in Christ, it will already begin to proclaim Christ. And yet, if we look internally, we often see that this ideal that God, that Jesus has placed before us, is not yet often the reality that we see in our churches today. I feel confident in saying this because I'd feel comfortable saying that pretty much in any church I walked into. It's not a, a, a specifically targeted claim. This is a, something that every church struggles with. I'm yet to have found the, the perfect church. And if you may be familiar with the phrase, if you found the perfect church, stay away, you'd just ruin it. There's yet to have been a church to perfectly meet this ideal that Jesus has set. It's not an isolated problem, but it is a problem that we do need to address and we do need to reflect upon. So if there is a problem in the church, where do we find the solution? Where do we find the cure? We have to turn to scripture to see how we can meet this ideal that Jesus has placed before us. This morning we're going to discuss some issues which do divide the church. And it's a, it's a difficult subject, but I think it is so important. Because if we are not united, how can we fulfill our mission? And if the mission is the purpose of the church, well, we really need to make sure that we are united together. And so this morning, as we go through just a few brief topics of things which potentially can divide a church... I want us to think not of others or what other people may have done in the past to us, but begin with ourselves. I think if all of us are being honest and reflective, each of us in our own way in the past or in the present have contributed to that, to the, the lack of unity in the church. And I think if we begin with ourselves first, that is the place that God wants us to start. As we go through scripture and reflect. I just pray that we would be very humble and that we would come with an attitude of willingness to hear the voice of God. I'm going to invite us to pray um, and I want to do so just by reading from one of David's Psalms of repentance. And as I just say this prayer, I pray that you also would um, feel this in your heart and Make this your prayer as well, and then we'll get into the remainder of our sermon. So let's bow our heads together. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, God, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Amen. So we'll begin by, this morning we'll look at four causes 
of division in the church and how we can address each of them personally in our lives. The first possible thing which can cause division and conflict in the church is that of church politics or sectarianism, as Paul calls it. Calls it. And sectarianism is just a fancy way of saying creating sects or creating groups, cliques, um, subgroups in the church. And if we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul addresses this very problem in the church at Corinth. Corinth, I do not envy Paul having to look after the church of Corinth. They are a handful of a church. They're basically not doing anything right. But the very, the very first thing that Paul decides to address is the fact that the church is completely fractured. They have no unity together because of politics that is dividing the church. Beginning in verse 10, Paul says, Now I plead with you. What a strong phrase. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions and quarrels among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, well, I'm of Paul, or I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So Paul here is saying uh, he's heard reports from one of these house churches that people have put themselves into little cliques, little subgroups. Some people putting up their hands saying, I'm team Paul, I'm team Apollos, I'm team Jesus. Which, think about that, that's ridiculous. Someone says, I'm team Jesus, and someone says, no, I'm not team Jesus, I'm team Peter. What a a ridiculous thing to say. But they're all gravitating around leaders that they like, and they're, they're intentionally dividing up themselves for their own kinds of personal gain. Each one is trying to look out for what they want, what they want to see in the church, and in doing so, they've decided to create subgroups for each other. But Paul says that it's useless. What, what harsh words he says when he goes, is Christ divided? Oh, that, that convicts me terribly. Is Christ divided? Now, of course, when we have Team Apollos and Team Peter and Team Jesus and Team Paul over here, how is the Corinthian church supposed to actually get their mission done? Because the worship leaders in Team Apollos and the head elders in Team, I don't know, Cephas and the ministry director is in Team Jesus and none of them want to get along because they're all in their separate teams. How is the church in Corinth supposed to actually get anything done when all of the people of influence, all the leaders in the church have gone their own separate ways? And we often do the same very thing in our churches. We'll gravitate towards certain people. We'll go to the leaders that we like. And we often play politics and games to try and get the church to 
go th- make things go our way. And we may do it to the point where we try and rip the churches into separate groups. Even if it's not on a local level, sometimes we do it about spiritual leaders in our church. We create groups that, you know, almost fan followings after certain people. I'm team Doug Batchelor. I'm team David Ashrick, whatever it may be. And we, we divide each other over these people as though Doug Batchelor and David Ashrick aren't all serving the same God. In the same way that the Corinthians were, as though Paul and Peter and Apollos aren't all trying to do the same mission together. But we try and arbitrarily divide up the church. I think Paul's words here, is Christ divided, are so powerful. Christ has not divided his church into team Paul, team Apollos, team Peter. They're all one, working together for the same mission. And that's what the Corinthians had lost focus on. They lost focus on the mission. What is the, the, the second problem that Paul identifies as something which can possibly tear apart the church? Paul speaks about this actually quite a lot. I've got a number of the texts here on the screen. It's an ongoing theme all throughout Paul's pastoral letters. To Timothy, he writes, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables, endless genealogies, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. He writes later to Timothy, reject profane and old wives fables. Exercise yourself toward godliness. To Titus, another pastor, he writes, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. And later again, avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. So I'm going to group these into three main things and we'll be very brief in each. He identifies old wives' tales or fables, endless genealogies, and strivings about the law. Well, what does he mean by the first two categories? Old wives' fables and endless genealogies. Well, an old wives' tale refers to superstitions, urban legends, folklore, myths. They're basically made-up stories. And we have lots of these in our uh, culture. For example... Here's a superstition. Don't swallow your gum or it'll stay in your stomach for seven years. How many people heard their mums tell them that? Don't swallow the gum. It'll stay in there for seven years. Uh, here's another example. You know, don't pull that silly face because if the wind changes direction, you'll be stuck with that face. Just a silly thing, right? Or what about this? If you eat sandwich crusts, your hair will get curly. The amount of times we heard that. These are just superstitions, myths, just little things that people say. And they, they're relatively harmless when they're like that. Or here's, a, here's an urban legend or a, a piece of folklore that I guarantee every young student has heard. They'll be swinging back on their chair like this and the teacher will say, now don't you do that, Billy. Don't you know the story of the boy who fell off his chair? What happened, to, what happened to that boy, miss? Well, Billy, he fell off his chair and he broke his back and that was the end of Billy. Then all the students are in awe of each other. Oh, 
Who is this kid? He's unnamed. He's this mythical figure. And this kid probably never, ever existed, but it's a, it's a story used to scare the children. Uh, the amount of times I heard that at school is ridiculous. Don't you know the story? And everyone always prefaced it with that. Don't you know? So that's an urban legend. It's a piece of folklore or, or myth. And those are some contemporary examples. But in ancient Jewish culture, they also had fables, legends, and superstitions. For example, uh, the Talmud writes, it is unwise to be between two dogs, two palms, or two women. Don't know why, but they seem to think it was unlucky to stand between these two things. Or another one, they say, it is dangerous to step over water that has been poured out. To me, that sounds very similar to our superstition, oh, don't walk underneath a ladder. It's, very, it's in a similar kind of vein. And most of the time, they're relatively harmless, but they begin to get a bit more troublesome. The main thing that all of these old wives' tales, folklore, myth, urban legends have in common is that um, they are unverified and unverifiable. You have no way of proving what they, whether they happened or if they're real at all. And the other thing they all have in common is they're meaningless. They're useless. They serve no purpose. They're all they are are distractions. Getting caught up in folklore and legends and superstitions, they just distract away from what is really important. Now, what does that look like in today's culture? Well, we've, met, we've mentioned a few examples. The boy who fell off his chair and eating too many crusts will make your hair go curly. They're pretty harmless. But what does that look like in a church context? What are the fables, the urban legends, the myths that we can get caught up in in a church context? I think there are possibly many examples, but the one that immediately comes to mind for myself is getting preoccupied with things such as conspiracy theories. They're, they're kind of the, the, the folklore or the urban legends or myths of our day. They're stories that we like to tell, but it's very difficult to prove whether they happened or not. It's very difficult to say with any certainty that they're true. And so they're unverified and unverifiable. And so, you know, we, we spend ages and hours upon hours debating things, whether the moon landings actually happened, whether the earth is flat, whether George Bush knew about 9-11, it was an inside job, whether there are aliens at Area 51 and UFOs are real. And unfortunately, you know, we get caught up in um, trying to speculate about COVID. Was it a man-made thing? Did it start somewhere? Is 5G responsible? You know, it, What's the deal with the vaccine? Has it got anything to do with the mark of the beast? We, we get so preoccupied with these things that are unverified and unverifiable. And I'll, I'll say that at the end of the day, they're useless. They're meaningless. At the end of the day, if the moon landings were faked, what, what does it have to do with my personal spiritual life? What impact does that have on my relationship with God? If the earth is flat, let it be flat. I, I don't mind. I don't mind what the shape is. These are things which distract us from what is truly important. Amen. 
And I feel like I've probably, of all the examples that I've given, I've met at least one person who believes at least one of those things. And I can tell you that every single time, it has never spiritually benefited that person by getting preoccupied with these myths and fables. All they ever do is serve as a distraction from the mission of the church. It gets to the point where I know many people who, when they meet a contact, rather than try and talk to them about the gospel, rather than tell them about Jesus, the cross, the three angels' message, they'll spend their time trying to convince them that the moon landings were a hoax, or they'll try and talk to them about COVID. Is that what's really most important when given the opportunity to witness to someone? Or is it more important to give them the good news of salvation that will give that person eternal life? In the grand scheme of things, is the three angels' message more or less important than knowing what happened on the day of 9-11 or knowing what, how COVID started? What's the more important thing between these? One might inform someone, perhaps. The other saves the person for eternity. To me, I, I look at that, and between those two choices, I always think my priority will always be the gospel. And yet Paul himself recognizes that there's an appeal, there's an attraction to, to these tales, these, these mysterious things. And he says, in fact, that these do not lead to godly edification. He says, all they ever do is serve as a distraction. And I, I've, from my personal experience, that's all I've ever seen. It becomes a distraction from what the true mission is. And I love in the, the second text there, he says, reject profane and old wives' tales. What does he say to do instead? Exercise yourself towards godliness, implying that being obsessed with profane and old wives' fables is not godliness. It's the opposite. It does not produce godly edification. <coughs> And so I think that we need to be less preoccupied with the things that we cannot prove, with things that are unverifiable, these old wives' tales, these myths and fables, and instead to focus on what is truly important, what is truly our mission. And I'll say very briefly, Paul refers as well to that final category of endless genealogies and strivings about the law. And really, we could, theorize, we could categorize that as theological disputes. But Paul is not referring to here major principles of the Christian faith. He's not saying, don't defend the Trinity, don't defend um, you know, the bodily resurrection. He's not talking about the core, the fundamentals of the Christian faith. These are these tiny, off-to-the-side, minor theological disputes, strivings over the law. And... These are the things that, in the grand scheme of one's salvation, are really insignificant. Uh, just this week, um, my mother-in-law was saying to me she'd received some messages from a friend trying to convince her that the Sabbath really was not on the seventh day. It had to do with uh, the moon and lunar Sabbaths. Uh, old wives' tales. It was a, an endless genealogy, a striving over the law, a distraction. I've known many people who are so focused with this idea that we need to celebrate all the feast days and the festivals. We need to celebrate them all. 
It's just more strivings over the law. Uh, People will try and theorize and speculate things in the Bible. The amount of people I've seen wrongly interpret Genesis 6 and who are the Nephilim? They'll go, oh, it was all sorts of crazy ideas. And even we can get preoccupied with trying to figure out every possible thing in the end times. We've been given a biblical timeline of prophecy and we know the events to look for. But sometimes we can be so preoccupied, we, we see the Pope sneeze and we try and figure out what it means. And it's a distraction. It's not what we're meant to be striving over. And I'll briefly put under this as well, another kind of useless type of debate is just really silly things. Like, what colour should the carpet of the church be? Or what about the pews? Or silly things that distract us from the mission. What, again, what, where are our priorities? The gospel that saves people or the color of the carpet? Is that really where I want my fight to be? Is that where I want to put my time and my energy and my effort? Or do I want to put it into reaching people to enter into the kingdom? In 2 Timothy 2, 22-23, we won't turn there, but you can go there if you want. Paul actually says that to argue over these issues is to fall into the snare of the devil. And he says that those who fight over these do not have their senses. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That Satan tries to intentionally ensnare Christians into fighting with each other about these tiny, tiny theological issues. And gets them to be distracted by tales and fables and myths. And why would he want to do that? Why does Satan want to ensnare Christians? To prevent them from fulfilling their mission. So rather than spend our time and our energy and our effort on these, these silly things, we need to be focusing on our mission and evangelism. A good uh, rule of thumb that I've heard when it comes to theological matters. Major in the majors, minor in the minors. Too often we major in the minor things and we minor in the major things. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Rather than majoring in the resurrection, the second coming, the, you know, the, the perfect life of Christ, the atonement, these beautiful major doctrines that build our faith, we want to major in the minor things and we want to quibble about things which really have no bearing on the, on the Christian life. We need to major in the majors Minor and the minors. The minors aren't not important, but they're not the major thing. And the final thing, the final thing which can create disunity in the church is really just that of different people, different personalities. And that's kind of bound to happen when you put a group of people together. Not everyone's going to get along. And to an extent, I actually think that's to be expected. You know, we have some people who just want to get things done. And other people want to take a bit more time to plan and strategize. Both of those things are good. We need people to get the job done. And we need people who can give us a long-term plan. Sometimes there can be a bit of a conflict there. But both of those two attributes are actually very positive and are needed for the church to survive. You have some who are more timid and shy. Others very loud and vocal. Neither one is right or wrong. But both are needed in God's church. We have those who want to lead and those who just simply like to go with the flow. Both are important. We can't have everyone be a leader, but we also can't have everyone 
just waiting to be told what to do. We need both to create a functional church. And each of us have our individual quirks, our personalities, our intricacies, and they might not always perfectly mesh with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, I think to an extent, that's to be expected. No one person is ever going to get along with every single person. Maybe Jesus. I think he might be the only one who was able to get along with every single person perfectly that he met. And on the other side, it's natural that we gravitate towards those who are more similar to us. People, sometimes people just naturally get along well with others more than other people. And that's to be expected. The problem is when we lose our patience or when we, we struggle so much to get along that we cause conflict rather than trying to do our best to get along with those that we have differences with. And even when such conflicts happen, there needs to be forgiveness and reconciliation. If we think about the church as a family, families fight, and some more than others, but families, without a doubt, fight. But after they've fought, they make up with each other, they reconcile, they give forgiveness, and the family continues to move forward. The church family should be similar. We may bicker, we may fight sometimes, but there has to be reconciliation and forgiveness. Think about Paul and John Mark. Um, Barnabas wants to take Paul, uh, Barnabas wants to take Mark on his missionary trip with Paul. And Paul just does not like Mark. He, he's actually annoyed at Mark. Mark, in our last missionary journey, he left halfway through to go with his family. And Paul, he kind of thinks that was a dodgy thing of Mark to do. How dare Mark leave the missionary trip to be with his family? Mark seems to be a bit more of a family man. Paul's a man on the mission. Ah, Mark, how could he leave? You know, he left me. And so Barnabas decides to take Mark and Paul decides to take Silas. They actually split up over this personality difference, over this difference of just who they are. Paul just does not get along with who Mark is. But then later, when you read in 1 Timothy, actually, or 2 Timothy, Paul refers to Mark as a brother in Christ. And he says, I recommend to you my good friend Mark. This is after they've had their divide, their conflict. But Paul says, I recommend to you my brother Mark. He loves Mark. I think the same should be true for us. We may have those differences. We may sometimes butt heads. But I hope that we can always be like Paul and Mark, who although may for a a short period of time, be separate. At the end of the day, we should be able to say, I recommend to you my brother or my sister, my friend in Christ. That is the ideal that we should be striving towards. Now, division and conflict are hard to avoid because really it's the natural propensity of the sinful human nature. The sinful human nature wants to create conflict, wants to create division, wants to go into separate groups, it's naturally geared towards that. So how do we combat it? Because really, Satan's got an easy job. He doesn't have to lay many snares for us. It's very easy when the sinful human nature naturally gravitates towards that. It reminds me of this fable. um, Oh, we go fable. Avoid fables, but here I am using one. An old tale, a, a moral, a parable, shall we say, of the frog and the scorpion. One day... A scorpion is sitting beside the edge of a lake and he sees a frog. And he says to the frog, 
Mr. Frog, I want to get over the other side of the lake. Will you please take me? And the frog looks at the scorpion and says, why would I trust you? You're a scorpion. And he says, I'll get halfway through the river and you'll sting me. And the scorpion says, no, 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 I won't, I won't. I just want to get across to the other side of the river. Trust me, I won't sting you. And the frog still isn't convinced. He goes, no, I think you're pulling my leg. I'll get halfway there and you'll sting me for sure. And the scorpion says, no, no, no. He says, think about it, frog. If I sting you halfway through the river, not only will you drown, I'll drown too. So it's in my best interest not to sting you. The frog, he thinks about it and he goes, "Uh, all right, that, that makes sense. That's good logic. So he says, all right, scorpion, you can come on my back and I'll take you to the other side of the lake. So the frog is swimming and the scorpion, he's not doing anything. And they get to about halfway through the lake and suddenly the scorpion gets his stinger right in the back of the frog. And the frog, of course, he's poisoned, he's hurt, he's injured. And as he's slowly drowning, he's, he asks the scorpion, he says, why did you sting me? You've killed us both. And the scorpion replies, sorry, it's just in my nature. And there's a, there's a lesson to be learnt in there. The scorpion, even though what he did was ultimately self-destructive, he did simply because it was his nature, his propensity. The very same is true for the sinful human nature. We do things so often that are self-destructive, that will get us drowned halfway through the lake. We do things that defy logic and sense, but we, we, we do it because, well, it was in my nature. The sinful human nature drives us towards being uh, in conflict. So how do we stay on task? How do we avoid self-destroying not only ourselves, but our church? I have two recommendations for us as to how we can defy that nature. The first being fixing our eyes on Jesus. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, the first thing we recognize is that he is the head of the church, the head and the foundation. He will do with his church whatever he wants. And so it's not our place to try and make our own political agendas work, not our place to create subgroups as though we're the leaders. The head of the church is Christ and he is the foundation and he will do what he wants with his church. If we're fixing our eyes on Jesus, we're no longer going to be distracted by side issues. Because who cares about the the strivings of the law over here and the old wives' tales and urban legends over here when we're looking at the most beautiful thing possible, the love of God on the cross. If we're fixing our eyes on that, why would we want to even take our eyes off it and go to the left or to the right and be distracted by things which do not profit us, that are useless and are not good for godly edification? If we focus on Jesus, we'll, have, we'll naturally want to give grace to other people. When we have those just natural clashes and differences that happen with other people, we'll be wanting to give grace and mercy because when we come to the cross, the, the, the floor, the, the footing is equal. No one's higher or lower at the cross. No one gets to stand at a pedestal at the cross. Everyone is equal at the cross in need of salvation and grace. And so when we recognize the grace that Jesus has given to us, we will naturally want to give it to others. And secondly, we need to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the only thing that transforms our heart to be more like Christ's. He is the one that causes us to grow in spiritual maturity 
and godliness. And he is the one that takes away that sinful nature of the heart that is self-destructive. Jesus' prayer was that his church be united and that through their unity they would testify of him, that the world would come to know him through their unity. The question is, can Kuna Barabran see Jesus in our church? Do they see us united together or divided and apart? If we're not united, how are we any different from the world? Indonesia and America and many other countries have tried to claim we have unity and diversity, but they fail to meet that ideal spectacularly. At times, are we any different from these worldly nations? I encourage each of us to reflect on the areas in our life and in our church life in which we need to repent for what we have done. Whatever the reason may be, I want you to consider, first of all, if you have any personal grievance against someone or if you know someone has a personal grievance against you. Jesus said that before you come to the temple, if you know that someone has something against you, go and reconcile with that person. Jesus doesn't say whether they have a right, rightful or wrongful um, reason to be, have a grievance against you. And he doesn't say it's the responsibility of the other person. He says the responsibility is on you. And only come to the temple. Or we could say only come to the church if you are first reconciled with your brother. Is there someone that you need to reconcile with this morning? Is there someone that you need to extend that brotherly or sisterly love to in Christ? I implore you as well. Put aside any political agendas that you may have for the church. Get rid of any conspiracy theories that detract you away from Christ and his cross. They only ever become a preoccupation, a distraction from what is truly important. Let's stay away of a vain strivings of the Lord, endless genealogies. We benefit more from discussing theology that actually builds up, edifies us, and creates in us godliness rather than majoring in these minor issues that all it does is create contention. And finally, look to Jesus. If we keep our eyes on him, we won't be ensnared by the traps of the devil. Be filled with the Holy Spirit and that scorpion heart will be transformed. Then and only then will we be able, together as a church, as the body of Christ, be able to go out into the world and proclaim the good news of Christ and him crucified.